as we read from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8 through 17. If you see in a providence the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivating fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income, nor he with his income. This is all vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous thing, evil, that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing. It did, but it's red and it's just it's just going dead. If you want to try to see if you can get. All right, can they hear this, Dwayne? Is that good? All right. We're going to start again in Ecclesiastes. Um, we took a break from it over Christmas, but we're going to start that series again, and we're going to start here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8 through 17. No, you're good. Let's make sure it works. See if that works. So we're beginning our series again in Ecclesiastes. In this particular section of Scripture is dealing with riches. And we know from Matthew 6.24, Scriptures say that no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot travel two roads at the same time. Two kings cannot sit on one throne. You cannot serve the Lord and follow the world. There's a famous painting that I have up here. The painter is a Renaissance artist named Quentin Masses, and the title of the painting is The Moneylender and His Wife. The moneylender sits at home, scale in hand, weighing his riches piled upon the table, assessing the very value of a particular coin. But her eyes are drawn to the moneylender's wife who sits next to him. She's thumbing through some kind of spiritual book, 
may very well be the Bible. Is she having her devotion? Is she having a quiet time? Is she meditating upon some wise saying? For the moment, she seems distracted from the book as she looks captively at the coin in her husband's hand. The painting is given to make a very serious point about God and money. Massey's adopted city of Antwerp, Belgium, had become an international epicenter for riches and wealth, trade and business. Support city like our city, and even today, 85% of the world's rough diamonds travel through its districts annually. So Quentin knew the temptation and the pull of wealth and riches. He'd seen many people, probably countless, pursuing the mirage of wealth and riches. And maybe even he himself had been tempted to head down that road. In our study of Ecclesiastes, we've come to understand the preacher is committed to a few things, but he is committed and determined to rescue us from the wasted life of Vanity Fair. The preacher is going to do all that he can to see that the modern day Las Vegas with all of its lights and all of its vulgar displays of wealth does not trap us, does not leave us thirsty and empty inside. The preacher is seeking to pull our eyes from the temporal and the fading in order that we might give our lives to the eternal and lasting. So what is the preacher's perspective? What is his point of view? Does he spend all of his times inside the walls of the church? No. The preacher tells us at the beginning that he has trotted down every road that he has walked down every path that Vanity Fair has to offer. He's tasted all the goods in Las Vegas, and he is here to share with us, is here to tell us they are destructive and meaningless and fleeting in nature. You see, the preacher is not like most, he's honest. He's honest about his pursuits. He's honest about his broken cisterns. He's honest about his own failings in life. Where does your confidence rest, Christian, here on Christmas? Where is your hope? Everyone has a confidence in a place where they try to find rest. The strong man finds it in his strength. The rich man in his wealth. The wise man in His wisdom. Where do you find your rest? Where do you find your hope? Maybe you're here today and maybe you've made the tough decision not to pursue wealth. I know of one couple who recently made a hard decision like that. Or maybe you're here and you have lots of wealth, but your hope is not found in that wealth. I would commend you, and in the very same breath, I would warn you, the battle to put your hope in riches is a never-ending battle as long as you are alive on planet Earth. Or maybe you're here today 
and riches and wealth are your aim. Maybe that's the pursuit of your life, is that you want to be rich. Maybe that's the reason that you chose the major that you chose or the path that you chose so that you could have lots of money. The preacher here is teaching and proclaiming and hoping to persuade you not to do that. Verse 8 and 9 begins, Corruption runs from the bottom of the ladder to the top of the ladder. Sin and brokenness are found both in the baby crib and on the throne of the kings. From the slums of India to the tycoons on Wall Street, corruption and sin touches every soul. Oppression and injustice, the violation of righteousness should never shock us as Christians. If you're shocked at what goes on in our world, if you have forgotten the depths and the height from which humanity has fallen, you are probably not assessing your own heart very well. You are probably not weighing fairly the lacking of your own soul. You're probably not being honest about your own thoughts and your own selfish ways. The preacher wants us to understand that oppression and injustice and the violation of righteousness resides within every human being that has ever walked on planet Earth. We are all bent to oppress. We are all bent to use one another for our own gain and our own benefit. And the love of money and the love of wealth feeds that bent. Samuel told the people of Israel when they wanted a king like the rest of the nations, he warned them and he told them in just a few verses in Samuel, it's like ten verses, he says this five times, the king will take, the king will take, the king will take, the king will take. And he says the king he will take your children. He will take your daughters and your sons. He will take your food and your cattle. He will take a tenth of all that you have. And the point that Samuel is trying to make is that only the king who is in need of no one or nothing can resolve the problems in our world. The craving of wealth, the insatiable appetite for more, causes us to oppress and abuse instead of love and serve. It causes us not to see one another, but to use one another. Homer Simpson said to his boss, Mr. Burns, you're the richest man I know. Yes, Mr. Burns said, and I would trade it all for a little bit more. Isn't that the culture of America? Isn't that the culture of our own country? The big lie of the world is just a little more, right? A little more fame. A few more wins. A few more promotions. A little bit more money. The preacher wants us to understand that the problem with the pursuit of wealth is it's a moving target. 
The finish line is always going around the next corner and around the next corner and down the road of life and down the road of life until you're on your deathbed and you still have not found what you have been pursuing all your life. The preacher says the pursuit of wealth is a bottomless pit. It's a bucket with a hole in it. It's a mirage, and most in our world are chasing it. The preacher wants to rescue us from that shallow road of pursuing riches and wealth. Verse 11 and 12 says this, basically, if you find yourself bathing in a bathtub of money, having attained the riches that you pursued, if you become one of the 2,825 billionaires in the world today, it may surprise you, but you won't sleep any better at night. You may be shocked to know that it won't guarantee your happiness. There will just be more to manage, more to protect, more to worry about. There will be more hands in the cookie jar. There will be more opportunity for you to worry and doubt. Are these my true friends? Or do they just want my stuff? You see, the preacher, he was the wealthiest man the richest man to ever live, Solomon. And he understands that riches cannot bring happiness. In fact, sometimes you're not even able to enjoy what you've gained. All you can do is pile it upon the table and look at it. But in turn, the Scriptures say, the sleep of the laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. Proverbs 30, 7-9 says it this way, Two things I ask of you, O Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and dishonor your name. How many of us pray that every day? God, I don't want riches, and I don't want to be poor. I just want you to give me my daily bread. I just want you to feed and clothe me and keep me close to your side. There's something healthy about an honest day's work, even if it doesn't lead to riches and wealth. If at the end of that day you find contentment and rest, that's where satisfaction lies, is with the Lord. The preacher goes on in verse 13 and 14. He says, there is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. 
And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is also the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand to give him. It's the story of the Christmas carol, right? Ebenezer Scrooge, the miser. Forgoing comfort, friendships in order to stockpile money and possessions, unable to see God, unable to see others. His barns have become so tall that he has missed the Lord and he has missed friendships. The preacher also continues, even once you have it all, even once you gather it all to yourself, you realize how quickly it can be taken. You realize how quickly that a lawsuit can come upon you. How quickly the government can take it through inheritance taxes. Bad investments. My dad had a friend who was a wealthy gentleman. He owned lots of cattle and one of the largest cattle farms in the state of Florida. And he worked really hard to become wealthy. And one day as he was driving one of his trucks locally in bad weather, he lost control and killed a man's wife. He spent countless hours in court. Much of his riches had to be paid. The vanity of pursuing wealth. The vanity of hanging on to riches. And at the end, the preacher wants us to know you're not taking any of it with you when you leave. So if you get it and you have it and you hang on to it, and you pile it and you hoard it up. As he came from his mother's womb, 15 says, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. There was an emperor, the first emperor of China. His name was Quinn. He unified China 221 B.C., Many would say he was the most powerful man to ever live on the earth. Towards the end of his life, he looked for the fountain of youth. His empire would outlast the Roman Empire by a thousand years. He had ten times as many subjects as the pharaohs. And in an attempt to conquer death, he made this army of clay two or three thousand clay men, all warriors with their horses, had them buried with him in his tomb along with riches and rivers of mercury to protect. But he still didn't take any of it with him. It was found in an estivation in 1976. Martin Luther said it this way, As I shall forsake my riches when I die, so I forsake them while I am living. Since we are headed to eternity, we should travel light.
Are you practicing the daily forsaking of riches? Are we as God's people practicing the forsaking of the temporal things each and every day because we have our eye on eternity? Verse 17 says, The person who makes money and riches and wealth his aim, the person who finds his confidence and his identity in these things, will eat alone in darkness, suffer great frustration and anger and affliction, and pierce himself with many pains. And what the preacher is after is he's after your heart. He's after your treasure. Not so that you'll be unhappy, but so that you truly will find joy. Listen at Matthew 6, 19-20. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, the truth is we all have riches in America. And as Christians, we should imitate our Lord who says that though He was rich for our sake, He became poor so that we might be made rich not through His selfishness, but through the giving of His very life for us. You see, the preacher is wanting you to trade your empire of dirt the preacher is wanting you to trade in your sandcastle of sand on the shores of the beaches for the gift and friendship of God. The preacher has trotted every road, the road of wealth and fame and powers and riches. And the preacher has been to the top of every ladder. He's been to the top of every mountain. And he wants to Persuade us not to pursue the vanity of wealth and money and things. So where are you today, Christian? What is it that you find your confidence in? Where does your hope lie? Have you bought in to Vanity Fair? Is your hope in stuff? Are you so enamored with the shiny things in the world that you cannot see God nor friendships or people? We as God's people and God's church should encourage one another daily to fix our eyes on the things that are unseen. For riches and wealth are fading. And moth and rust will soon come. Even to those emperors who were the greatest in our world, their treasures lie decaying, their souls long gone into eternity, and they still have not taken any with them. As we think about that this week, We'll continue in this passage next week. Jesus is worth forsaking all.
pray. Father, there is a pull on each of our hearts if we are honest to try and fix the brokenness that we know each resides within our souls, to try to fix that brokenness and that pain. God, with money, with riches, with stuff. God, there's the temptation to try and mend our spiritual brokenness, God, with physical things in this world. Lord, I pray that You would give us eyes to see that the only thing, the only remedy, God, for our bankruptcy is humbling ourselves and trusting Christ. The only remedy, God, for contentment and satisfaction in this world is humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God, bending our knee to Him, trusting Him and putting our hope in what He has accomplished for us. God, keep us from the path of vanity fair. And God, may Your kindness keep our feet steady and on the narrow path that leads home to be with You. In Christ's name.